1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Okay, stand back, Molly. The door kicks up a bit when I open it. Let me just push the button. All right.
5: Wow. (laughs) There's a a lot of stuff in here, Seth. Don't you throw anything away?
4: Uh, Why would I want to? All
5: right. What is it we're looking for? What are we looking for again?
4: We're looking for my Star Tracker, Molly.
5: What's a Star Tracker? You mean like a People magazine?
4: Yeah, well, no. It's actually a device. You mount your camera on it, and then it has a little motor, and it follows the stars across the sky, and that way you can make time exposures at night. So you mount your camera on it. That's exactly right. Is
5: this it? Uh,
4: No, that's That's not it, no. But, you know, Molly, I really appreciate your help here because, you know, I'm afraid to come in here alone.
5: (laughs) Well, sure, Seth. I don't mind. Besides, it gives me a chance to get to know you better. You know what they say, the garage is the window to the soul. I think someone said that.
4: I don't know, but I don't know what three boxes of antenna tuning coils, says about my soul.
5: I'm Molly Bentley.
4: And I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to my garage on Are We Alone?
5: Hey, Seth, this is impressive. What is this? Is this a, ba- a bandsaw? Yeah, it's a bandsaw. It's big. Saw. What do you cut with that?
4: Well, I don't know. Uh, wood, metal, you know, meat, whatever.
5: <laughs> you have lots of paint here. There's a, is that, that's a beanbag chair. Was. You, know, you know what I don't see in this gra- Popcorn popper. Oh, no, yeah. but what I don't see in this garage um, is
4: a car. Yeah, there's no car in here. No cars are allowed in here, actually. Where are your cars? Uh, they're outside. They, they stay outside. Look, Molly, you got to make a choice, you know. It's either going to be your car or all this valuable stuff. Right,
5: like your flashlight collection over
4: here, yeah, looks like. Well,
5: okay, yeah. so Star Tracker, uh, what should we be looking for?
4: Well, you don't have to worry about what it looks like. It's got gears and motors, and so, but it's in a box, and the box is labeled Star Tracker.
5: Got it. Ooh! Wait, who did that?
4: No, it does it automatically. It's on a timer.
5: Oh, it's very dark now. Uh, let's see. I should find a light.
4: Yeah, there's a there's a cord over there somewhere, and it's hanging from the ceiling. Okay. I think. Wait a minute.
5: Here, yeah, let me get over here.
4: Yeah. Okay. Oh. Oh, geez. Sorry, Molly. That's yeah. Be careful. Okay. okay.
5: It's really dark here. This this garage emits no light.
4: Yeah, kind of like a black hole. Maybe this is the center of the galaxy. Who knows? I mean, my garage, the center of the Milky Way. Which reminds me, there might be a box of candy bars from last year's Halloween around here, so don't step on them.
5: Why would your garage be the center of the galaxy?
4: Well, I don't think it actually is, but, you know, it's emitting no light. And when you think about it, that's what black holes do, or don't do, actually. You know, gravity gets so strong inside a, a black hole that even, even photons, a little careful there, little particles of light can't escape. In fact, there's an astronomer at the University of California down in L.A., Andrea Guess, who's actually, she actually measured that supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way.
5: Okay, okay, it must be over here. What, how are, how are black holes formed?
4: Well, it's easy to make a black hole. All you have to do is take a bunch of mass and put it into a really tiny space, and then, you know, the gravity eventually overwhelms everything, and it collapses in on itself, collapses under its own weight, if you will. And, oh, hey, here's an old reel-to-reel. So you
5: just need a lot of mass of something. In that case, your garage would probably qualify for the beginnings of a black hole, right? I bet the
4: neighbors would like that.
5: Oh, here's the light. I found it.
4: Andrea, uh, you've gone searching for a black hole, but uh, the mother of all black holes in our galaxy in the center. What makes you think there is a black hole down there?
6: Well, we think there's a black hole at the center of our galaxy because of the way stars move there. We can watch the way they circle, and that tells us there's a lot of mass inside a small volume.
4: Well, is our galaxy special in in having a black hole in its center?
6: No, that's the great thing about our galaxies. we're completely ordinary garden variety, nothing special about us. So if we have a black hole, it probably means most galaxies harbor a black hole as well.
4: Now, you said that we can tell that there's a black hole there. I mean, I I think most people know that black holes are rather hard to see. You really can't see them. The light doesn't get out. And uh, so you said that we can find them by measuring the motions of stars. Maybe you could explain that a bit. Well, black holes emit no light, so we
6: do have to use an indirect means to find them. And the proof of a black hole is to show that there's a lot of mass inside a small volume. And the way we do this is watch how stars orbit the center of our galaxy, just like the way planets orbit the Sun. That tells you what the mass is. And the size of the orbit tells you how confined the mass is. So if we can put a lot of mass inside a small volume, that's the proof of a black hole.
4: Now, one thing about measuring stars near the center of the galaxy is that they're far away. How far away is the center of the galaxy?
6: Well, the black, uh, the black hole at the center of the galaxy is very far away. It takes light, light, um, 26,000 light years to get from the center of our galaxy to us.
4: Okay. So 26,000 light years away. But the other problem is that there's a lot of dust in our galaxy, which makes the seeing a little uh, problematic.
6: There is a lot of dust between us and the center of the galaxy. And for those of us who live in Los Angeles, we have a lot of experience with this. This is like smog in Los Angeles. And dust is really good at obscuring light that our eye detects. But if we go just longward of what our eye detects to the infrared, that light gets through the dust, penetrates, so we can actually see the center of our galaxy.
4: So you've Used an infrared telescope to actually
6: see stars that are very near the center? Yes, we've used an infrared telescope to see right down to the center of our galaxy.
4: When you say right down to the center, how, how close are these stars to uh, that big black hole?
6: These stars are so close that they get within the size of our solar system
4: to the black hole. That's, that's incredibly close, given the distance of this big black hole. So you've, you've gone. How, how do you actually measure the motion of the stars there? It's actually like making a movie. We take a picture a few times a year, and we
6: watch how these things move across the sky. And that defines the orbit.
4: You know, this is you make it sound very simple, but this is not a trivial thing to do.
6: Well, the hard thing is actually that we have this atmosphere. The atmosphere is great for us. It allows us to live here on Earth, but it's, a, it's just
4: a pain for the astronomers because it distorts our view. So, the, Seth, what oh, happened? Oh, sorry, Molly. I, I'm just filling with the speed of the tape deck here. I'll crank it back to three and three quarters inches per second. It'll sound normal. Sorry. So the hardest part of this
6: business is to actually correct the distortions introduced by the Earth's atmosphere. The atmosphere is kind of like a, a circus funhouse mirror, and what we do is we actually try to figure out how to make a inverse circus funhouse mirror to undo what the atmosphere does to us so we get a perfect image of the center of our galaxy.
4: Okay, so you've done this. It's taken you how long? Well,
6: we've been at this for about
4: 15 years. So this is a major project, but on the other hand, this is a very interesting question, whether there's a black hole and how big it is and what its properties might be. What have you learned?
6: Well, we've learned, one, that these supermassive black holes really do exist, which tell us, us that these exotic objects really um, do exist, and we have to explain them. And this experiment has been very much like a fine wine. It just keeps getting better with time. Tell me something more about that. Well, every few years, we can make a big jump in terms of what we can learn. So in the beginning, we could show that there was maybe four million times the mass of our Sun confined within a relatively big volume. We waited a few more years, and we shrunk it a little bit closer, so every few years we could, get, we could, could find it a little bit smaller, which is just strengthening the case for a supermassive black hole.
4: And so the bottom line is, there's a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy. How big again? It's four million times the mass of the Sun. So four million stars have given their all, if they're stars like the Sun, to be part of this black hole. They've all collapsed there. By the way, how did they get there? What made this black hole?
6: That's a good question. Actually, people don't know. The question now is, uh, how do we get these black holes at the center of the galaxy? And We think it has something to do with galaxy formation, that whatever forms our galaxy actually sees this black hole at the very beginning. But the good news is we have nothing to worry about this black hole. It will not affect us. So no, no, no concerns about consumption of the, uh, the, the sun.
4: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people do worry about that because one thing they know about black holes is that they, they suck, if you will, that they, they have this enormous uh, gravitational pull, but uh, there's no danger of us being pulled in.
6: None at all. We're ab- absolutely safe.
4: And, you know, black holes, as seen in other galaxies, sometimes uh, produce a lot of fireworks that we see with our radio telescopes, with optical telescopes, and so forth. And we haven't seen too much of that from our uh, own black hole, the, the one in our own backyard here. Why is that?
6: Well, we have a black hole that doesn't seem to have much around it. So it's, uh, I guess I like to call it a black hole on a diet. Um, and as a result, there's not much to be seen. It's kind of like a stealth black hole lurking at the center of our galaxy.
4: Finally, Andrea, if you could go to the center of our galaxy and make uh, observations of the central black hole, what is it that you would most want to know about this, this beast that lies at the very center of our celestial neighborhood?
6: Well, what's next for us, I think, is to understand how supermassive black holes warp space-time. There's a whole theory of general relativity, and this is a great opportunity for testing that theory, but that's
4: in the future, so we, we're going to have to have more patience. Okay. Andrea Ghez, thank you very much for talking with me. My pleasure. You know, it's interesting what astronomer Andrea Ghez and her team are doing at UCLA. I mean, measuring the motions of stars in the middle of the Milky Way. Incredible.
7: Oh,
5: gross. Seth, what's, it, what's in this jar? It's green? It has eyes? Is this alive? It's not or alive. Was it once alive?
4: Well, I don't know. It's an alien in a jar. I mean, I think that's obvious, isn't it? I mean,
5: <laughs> okay, yeah, go on.
4: Yeah, well, uh, the good news is if you found the alien in the jar, the posters can't be far behind. What
5: posters are these? Well, I don't. You, my, my,
4: my movie posters. You, will you, see that tube there behind the exercise bike? Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, let's open this up. Okay, see? It's my movie posters. All oh, alien things. movie posters. Well, some. I mean, if they got aliens, there's War of the Worlds, right? Let's open this up. Okay. Oh. And, yeah, oh, Day the Earth Stood Still. Old and new versions, you'll notice. Oh, you oh and have this lots one? Of them. Yeah, oh, yeah, Oh, now that's a classic. Yeah. Zontar, thing from Venus. <laughs> you ever so you see?
5: watched a lot, of, no, I never thought. You watched yeah. a lot of B movies.
4: Uh, I don't think these rose to B. These may not have gotten a passing grade.
5: How did you get the posters?
4: Well, um, you know, I would go down to the theater after the f- film had run its course, usually about a day and a half. And sometimes they'd just give them to me.
5: Oh, Independence Day. That was a great film.
4: It was, indeed. That was a fun film. You know, this whole attacking the earth thing. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's dusty. Well, yeah. I once talked with Catherine Denning about that. You know, she's an anthropologist at York University uh, in Toronto. She thinks about this. (laughs) Yeah, you, you want some Kleenex? I mean, there's a rag down there on the, it's kind of greasy. <laughs> okay, you're and, saying
5: you talked to Catherine Denny. Yeah,
4: because, you know, Stephen Hawking just recently opined that if the aliens actually showed up, it wouldn't be good news. Their their technology would be so far beyond ours. I mean, they, they got here that uh, we should be afraid. I wondered whether she would have been afraid.
1: With respect to the idea of aliens showing up, in person or rather in alien form on uh, on the, f- the face of our planet and actually interacting with us physically. Obviously, there's only so much you can say about that from the, the history of human life on Earth and human encounters with other humans because you know, we're dealing now with a different species and a vastly different technology. And the physics would suggest that they would have to have some pretty hot technology and considerable knowledge and also considerable motivation to actually come here in person. So I think there's grounds for suspicion that that might not be a good thing, but we don't know anything about what extraterrestrial motivations might be like, if indeed they exist.
4: Well, you're being a little bit tentative here. Yeah. But, well, then let me put it to you very <laughs> personally. I mean, suppose you were to pick up the papers tomorrow and then said, you know, aliens had landed, uh, in, in, not in small numbers, but, uh, you know, that they they sent a real contingent to Earth. Would you say, well, I, I want to go speak with them, or would you head for the hills?
1: Hmm, that's a tough one. I would want to get as much information as possible from the headlines. Uh, what what else does the uh, newspaper article include? Does it tell me anything about how big they are, anything about their technology? Are they Ray guns at people. What are they doing?
4: Well, I I don't know, but I mean, they're obviously big enough to survive, you know, coming through the atmosphere, so they're, you know, they're bigger than a sand grain. Uh They're, uh, you know, bigger than than the size of an average living room, so, uh, or at least their spacecraft is, and Mm -hmm. presumably they build their spacecraft to accommodate themselves. So,
1: Mm I, let's just assume you don't know much Hmm. Well, frankly, I would reserve judgment until uh, I wouldn't immediately react with a run to the hills or uh, run to the, the site of the encounter. I would just. Yeah, a lot would depend on their initial appearance.
4: Let's take another scenario that might be more uh, likely. Mm -hmm. You're a member of the International Academy of Astronautics SETI Permanent Study Group. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what we're considering there is the possibility that we might learn about the aliens via a signal, radio signal, optical signal that we pick up here on Earth. So it isn't a matter of them showing up on our planet. In fact, they may not know anything about our existence, but we have. Uh, established that there's somebody out there who's very clever. Now, what about the reaction of humanity to that? Uh, again, popular fiction portrays that as usually some sort of mass panic.
1: hmm I don't think there's much grounds for supposing that that would be the case. It's going to depend on the nature of the signal. Um, is it, for example, the cosmic dial tone? Do we just know that there's somebody there? Do Can we infer anything at all about the society in question from the signal. So is it structured in a way that reveals something about their language? And if, for example, we could decipher the the message, is there significant content in it? All of those provoke different scenarios. So let's suppose it is just the cosmic dial tone. We know that there's somebody there. Is that going to cause a massive revolution in humanity's conception of itself? Is it going to destabilize our identities? Is it going to, you know, reconfigure everything? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Some people figure it will. I'm not so convinced, actually.
4: Well, well, Jill Charter has suggested this, that SETI could change the world by proving that there's somebody else out there. And we would suddenly realize that, well, in fact, we have so much more in common with one another than we do with these others, that there would be some sort of uh, global appreciation of one another and the, the various conflicts that rend our planet amongst its Homo sapiens inhabitants would somehow go away. Do you see that happening?
1: It's a possibility, and it would certainly be my favorite possibility. It's not the only one, however. And I say that based on um, two things. One is, say, the Copernican experience. I mean, so quite frequently this one is invoked as, as an example of, well, what happens when you change people's view of their position in the universe? Well, okay, all right, so does the sun go around the earth or does the earth go around the sun? How many people actually really, truly know the answer. Surveys suggest that it's fewer than you might think. Even today is what you're saying. Yes. Um, You know, we don't have kind of 100% Knowledge of that. I mean, we haven't 100% knowledge of the physical phenomenon, but people in general don't, you know, if you actually do surveys and you actually ask them which one is it, uh, n- n- not everybody actually knows. And that's okay. But my point is simply that, okay, so to what extent has this realization reconfigured everybody's personal sense of self and their position in the universe? Yes and no. Um, so, yes, it has filtered down through the thinkers, through the scholars and through the educators and through the students. And, and so some people know this, and it has generally shifted things. But does it shift everybody's view? I wouldn't say so. My question would be, well, hu- would humanity, in fact, all join together in, in, in great joy at new appreciation of their oneness? Maybe they would. Or would they fission into uh, actually in increasingly trenchant factions who are jockeying for position with these powerful newcomers? Or would they actually unite, but at the cost of being tremendously hostile to, uh, to these new others? So, I mean, there's a spectrum of possibilities there, too, that is suggested by um, human experiences on Earth.
4: So it sounds like uh, neither panic nor panacea are uh, guaranteed. Yeah. Uh finally, then, given this ambiguity in the, if you will, the worldwide reaction to, say, a SETI success where we pick up a signal, would you think it's still worth the candle or is the possible downside of uh, such magnitude that maybe we shouldn't even be listening?
1: Personally, I think it's worth it to listen. I'd like
5: to know.
4: Catherine Denning, thank you. Thank you.
5: So okay, so the aliens won't necessarily wipe us out the way that they do so often in the movies. Uh, you've actually made a couple movies where the aliens do.
4: Yeah, wipe yeah, us it's out. much more fun when the aliens are what, nasty.
5: What are the names of those
4: movies? Well, there was the teenage monster blob from outer space, which I was, where you know about six pounds of stuff that looks like play doh. Right. comes down to, yeah, that's, well, that's it. It's over there in the can, actually. Uh, you know, it comes down to earth, and uh, they begin to eat everybody. You know, how, usual. About, how
5: about the radio hosts that were crushed by plastic forks? Uh, how many plastic forks do you have? In th- why?
4: Yeah, well, uh, you know, somebody might ask you to fork over. I don't know. I mean, you can always use more plastic forks. I think somebody gave me all those.
5: Okay, you're, this is a little bit, these are the, all the symptoms of an eccentric, Seth.
4: Are, uh, you, are, you aware, are you aware of that? Is that something that's curable?
5: Well, we'll find out what else Seth owns as we continue rooting through Seth's garage and the hunt for this star tracker. You're listening to Are We Alone? Science radio for thinking species on any world.
4: Welcome back to Are We Alone? Molly, I think the Star Tracker is in a box over there.
5: As we look for Seth's Star Tracker, Seth,
4: when do you need the Star Tracker? Well, I'm going up to the observatory this weekend. I need it this weekend.
5: Hey, this bookcase is filled with, what are these? These are photo albums, it looks like. They're all labeled.
4: Yep, they are. They are photo albums, and they have photos. That's what they have. They go back a long way, too. I think some of them go back to the daguerreotype. Not sure of that.
5: But they're so neatly organized and numbered. Each has a date on here.
4: Yep, and the negatives, too. Well that, well, that allows me to find things that go back so far. I mean, it's good to be organized. It's good to describe these things with a few numbers.
5: I'm impressed. Symmetrical, neat symmetrical rows here.
4: Yeah, it's uh, mathematics at work. In fact, you know, it reminds me, Einstein wondered at one point, how is it that mathematics, which is something that, you know, we've invented, after all, I mean, independent of the real world, describes so well the laws of the universe? In other words, you can talk about something that's really weird and strange like light And you can describe the behavior of light by just writing down a few symbols on a sheet of paper. You mean something like E equals mc squared. Right, but that's not so much about light, but you know, the way light bends in water, the way a stick stuck in water looks like it's bent, it's just a simple formula. Astrophysicist Mario Livio has written a book called Is God a Mathematician?
5: Oh yeah, you talked to him recently, didn't you?
4: I did, he looked at this idea throughout history, you know, this puzzling connection. I mean, it's really profound between mathematics and the universe
5: that's interesting what did he say
4: well i asked him for some examples of how mathematics describes nature and he started by telling me how isaac newton had written a simple formula that in fact explains or at least describes gravity
2: newton wrote a formula a mathematical formula that describes the force of gravity Uh, it describes the gravitational force between any two bodies and we actually use that particular formula to describe the motions, for example, of all the planets uh, in the solar system and indeed motions even in very distant galaxies.
4: Well, now for someone who has taken high school physics, this might not seem particularly remarkable. And I think that's because we learn that the mathematics is the physics. But really, the fundamental question that you ask and that others have asked, including Einstein, is this. Why should the universe conform so precisely to mathematical expressions it doesn't conform to other human inventions like poetry or anything like
2: that. That's right. I mean, not only that it conforms, but we don't only use mathematics to explain phenomena that we observe. Uh, We use these mathematical theories to actually predict even things that we have never seen before, and those predictions turn out to be extremely accurate. So,
4: in, in fact, mathematics seems to have this very deep relationship to nature, and it didn't
2: have to be that way. You're right. I mean, at least not a priori, we, we should not have expected this to be. And uh, Eugene Wigner, a famous Nobel laureate, said that, you know, the fact that mathematics does describe the laws of nature so accurately is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve.
4: Well, what's your opinion on this? I'm, I'll, let me formulate this another way. Uh, we sometimes wonder if math is simply a human invention or is it an inherent property if you will of the universe something that came with the universe kind of like nuclear fusion and we just discovered it is is it an invention or is it a discovery
2: so to say it very briefly i would say that the this question is simply ill posed namely you know the question seems to imply that it has to be one or the other but it cannot be both uh, i actually think that mathematics is a very intricate combination of inventions and discoveries Put very broadly, uh, humans invented the concepts but then discovered the relations among those concepts. Okay, could could you
4: expand on that a little bit more?
2: Yes, Yes. let me give you uh, an example. For example, you know, there are these things we call prime numbers. These are the numbers that are divisible only by themselves and by one. The concept of prime numbers is actually a human invention. Uh, The Greeks invented it. Uh, The mathematicians of China and India never invented the concept of prime numbers and it does not appear in their mathematics. Now, once you invented the concept and started studying it, you can discover, you know, a multitude of theorems about prime numbers, for example, a theorem that Euclid, the famous greek mathematician wrote was that there is an infinite number of prime numbers and there are many other such theorems those theorems are actual discoveries but the concept was an invention
4: okay so when you title your book is god a mathematician am i right in saying that you're really asking did god
2: deliberately build the universe according
4: to mathematical models
2: in a way i mean what the question really tries to describe are those two effects that you described uh, initially here, which was, one is, how come mathematics is as powerful as it is in terms of explaining the universe? And second, is really mathematics you know an invention of the human mind, or do we just discover mathematical truths? This is what I mean by this question. So it's really a, a combination of two questions uh, with which many people have dealt with.
4: This brings to mind a question for me. Uh, the fact that mathematics does describe the, the universe, does that make the universe more elegant, or is, is it somehow uh, an expense-saving move? I mean, it just makes the universe, if you will, childishly simple uh, that a description of one electron will do for an entire universe of electrons. We don't have much personality here. It's as simple as it, it, as it is.
2: The universe, I mean, we are lucky in a way that the universe does obey some universal laws. I mean, in principle, it didn't have to be this way. But of course, if it weren't this way, we would be unable to describe it at all. You know, if the laws here were not the same as the laws at the galaxy that is 12 billion light-years away. Uh, we would have no chance to describe the universe so there actually are some universal laws now arguably you know maybe we would not have existed in a universe that did not have universal laws maybe that was something that was absolutely necessary to get things as complex as ourselves but of course once those laws are there then there is this additional mystery that we found a language, namely the language of mathematics, that really describes those laws so uh, excellently.
4: Well, surely there are some phenomena in our universe that can't be adequately
2: described by mathematics. C- can you name some of those? Of course, there are many of those and the best example that we recently have had is uh, the world of economics. The world of economics includes variables which don't allow for a good quantitative description like the psychology of the masses, for example. If you look at all the systems that we call chaotic, there is also a situation where you have systems that are so infinitely sensitive to the initial conditions from which you start them that there is, will never be a way to describe them fully, you know, after a long time. Now. This is partly the answer to the question of the effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, Mathematics works fantastically in places where we actually somehow think that they will work fantastically, in particular about the very fundamental laws of nature. We don't try to apply mathematics to extremely complex biological systems because we know that they will not work there.
4: Well, doesn't that suggest that maybe mathematics is merely a tool that works on some natural mechanisms but not on others, and and, and we're making too much of the fact that it does work on some of these, and consequently we, we're asking this question, is God a mathematician?
2: There is some truth to that. It is still nevertheless the case that it is hard to understand how we can formulate a theory of, uh, let's say, quantum electrodynamics, which is a theory of all the electric and magnetic forces of nature, and we can make predictions based on those theory, which turn out to be correct to parts in a trillion. I mean, how do you get this phenomenal accuracy? It's still very, very uh, perplexing.
4: We've had some guests on this show that have talked about string theory. It's very popular with physicists these days. But as far as I can tell, string theory, since we we don't have any machines that can actually test it, at least uh, not that I've heard about, uh, is mostly mathematics. And and it's suggesting that that science, in fact, has moved beyond the lab, you know, onto a sheet of paper. Is is this the way we're going to learn more about the universe, just by working out, you know, symbolic things on, on, on paper?
2: String theory is a good example that indeed we may have to go through this path, at least in you know, present-day physics. Now, I will be the first to admit that if it will turn out uh, a few decades from now, that we still don't have very direct predictions that can be tested either experimentally or observationally, we should reconsider whether this was the correct path to take. But at the moment, you're absolutely right. Uh, We even have to invent the mathematics that is being used in string theory to make progress.
4: Well, finally, Mario, we had a researcher here on the show who ventured that there was maybe a 20% chance, and I'm not quite sure where he got that number, but he ventured there was a 20% chance that our existence was just a computer simulation being run by beings of the future as kind of a history project. Could it be that the apparent conformity of the universe to these relatively simple mathematical rules is somehow evidence that this idea might be true, that, that God in some sense is just a computer programmer of the
2: future? Uh, it's hard for me to speculate on this. However, I will say you—you uh, you know that there, are, there can be many, many mathematical structures, of course, and... There is no way that you can absolutely prove that we are not the results of some particular complex mathematical structure. Uh, But I think that at some level maybe this is semantics because we are still continue, we'll have to continue to operate on the basis of our senses and what we can measure. So whether or not this is a result of some bizarre computer program or not, we may never actually know that.
4: I would be disappointed if it turned out I was just a bit of code in somebody's <laughs> program of the future but you know maybe it's better than nothing. Well Mario Olivio thank you so much for talking with me.
2: My pleasure.
5: Well, as an astrophysicist, Mario Livio may see order in the universe, Seth, and even in this bookcase here, which is so neatly arranged, but the rest of your garage, it's pure
4: chaos. If your Star Trek is so important, how could you misplace it? Well, just look around the garage, Molly. You can see how I could misplace it. Look, I'm just too busy to find where all that stuff is.
5: What, collecting computers? What is this? Is this an MSI 8080 here? Ah, it's heavy. Yeah. This should be in the Smithsonian, this computer. Yeah, what, well nineteen seventy seven.
4: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, I think its brothers are in the computer. But that was my first computer, actually, my first home computer. Soldered it together myself. It was the last computer I actually understood.
5: Well we are in Silicon Valley. Was that computer invented in Silicon Valley?
4: It was. Well, actually on the other side in Oakland, near where you live, actually.
5: I suppose it's valuable. Maybe one day you'll donate that to a museum. But all this other stuff, if you got rid of it, do you think you'd miss it?
4: Oh yeah. I mean you might as well take away my heart, my soul, my <laughs> pancreas. <laughs>
5: Is your pancreas here somewhere in the garage? I wouldn't be. doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. Well, none of it's going away and neither are we for very long. We'll be right back with more clutter and discovery on Are We Alone? Science radio for thinking species
4: on any world. Hey, Molly, don't step on my hula hoop over there.
3: From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Well, Seth, to walk into your garage, which is just about impossible to do, is to walk into the past. This is really a nostalgic trip. Well, I don't know, not to me. I mean, this Life magazine, no one has Life magazine anymore. Well, I do. And a chemistry set?
4: Well, yeah, chemistry sets. I mean, they don't sell them to kids anymore because they figured the kids would make something interesting, which is to say dangerous.
5: Ooh. Are those, are those milk bottles? These are actually milk bottles. Ooh. You know, you don't, you don't see these anymore. I remember, I had a milkman while growing up in the 1970s, but even back then, the milk came in cartons. They didn't come in bottles like this. Well, they but they did. you know it you know was fun? We would sneak out my brother and I to the milk box, and we would mark ice cream when my parents weren't looking, and then the next morning, the ice cream would come.
4: Well, in my day, if you drank milk, it was out of a glass bottle. I mean, cartons? What is a carton? That sounds like for cigarettes.
5: So they just recycled these glass bottles? Is that the idea? Yep.
4: Environmentally well, friendly.
5: But did you have a lot of cows growing up in Virginia?
4: Uh, probably there were a lot of cows growing up in Virginia, just not where I was. <laughs>
5: well, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I know something about cows. But, of course, scientists know a lot more about cows these days. You know how they're always sequencing some other,
4: some other species? You mean like E. coli and stuff? <laughs>
5: something like that. You know, the, the cattle genome has, has been sequenced.
4: Well, you know, it's not just the cattle genome, Molly, because if you can believe it, they've also sequenced the milk genome. They've isolated that from the cow genome. And that's interesting, Molly, because, of course, cattle are not the only animals that produce milk. I mean, all mammals do that. So we're learning something about the evolution of lactation, about mammals. I spoke with a nutritionist at the University of California, Davis, uh, Danielle LeMay, about this, actually.
5: The milk genome has been sequenced? What does that even mean? I thought you could only sequence living organisms.
4: I know. That's exactly what I asked Danielle. Danielle. The milk genome has been sequenced, but, you know, what does that even mean? I thought you could only sequence an entire organism.
7: Um, you're right. The milk milk does not have a genome itself, or it's only living organisms can have a genome. But um, usually when someone refers to the milk genome, what they really mean to say are the genes involved in milk production.
4: Okay, so they had sequenced what the entire genome of dairy cattle, was that the deal, and then picked out the part that was involved with milk production?
7: Right. The team that I was involved with uh, was specifically focusing on finding those genes that are involved in milk production.
4: Well, okay, so you have a sequence of genes there that are involved with, presumably with lactation uh, and with the quality of the milk and so forth and so on. Uh, how, how big is that part of the genome? Is that a you know very large part of a, a, the, the genome of a, of a cow?
7: Yeah, well, we actually found around some 6,000 genes that were expressed in the mammary gland of, of the cow. So it's a pretty substantial part of the genome, which tells us that, of course, many of those genes do a lot more than just produce milk.
4: Well, what do you then learn? I mean, do you, do you learn something about how we developed this ability to nurse our young? Because, after all, that's fairly specialized in the world of animals. Mammals do it, but, uh, you know, the others don't.
7: Well, the bigger reason, really, to look at the cow's DNA is to understand, you know, what makes the cow a cow and also how different or similar we are from cows and how similar they are from other animals. Cows are really special to us looking at their genome because they're ruminants, and this will be the very first genome we've looked at that is a ruminant. I should explain probably what a ruminant is. Those are animals that have these special stomachs that can ferment really difficult-to-digest foliage, uh, like grass, into high-energy molecules, and they do so uh, with microorganisms that do the breaking down of the grass. So when we look at the cow DNA, we're looking for things that are special to the cow. And one of the things that was really special were uh, immune-related genes, meaning those genes that were involved with handling uh, microorganisms.
4: I understand, Danielle, that there are some parts of this lactation genome set that show a lot of difference between, you know, mammals and cattle, other mammals that lactate and cattle, and there are other parts of the genome that are pretty much identical. What's the difference there?
7: Genes that we found that are very well conserved are those genes that are directly responsible for secreting the milk fat. And meanwhile, genes that create proteins in the milk specifically for nutrition and for uh, immunological defense, those ones are really different between mammals, and we might expect that given that each mammal has their own nutritional needs and their own um, exposures to
4: pathogens. So the milk is changing as the, uh, if you will, the biological threats against the cattle change. In other words, they're adapting to uh, to meet you know new diseases.
7: Yeah, they, they certainly will face their own unique pathogens. Every animal that's in their biological niche will have their own exposure to pathogens. And cows are um, quite unique in that they have to support their symbiotic relationships with the microorganisms that are in their rumens. And so humans, naturally, we also have the microorganisms in our guts, but we're not nearly as dependent upon them as, say, a cow would be, because the cow's actually depending on those microorganisms to digest the food
4: for them. Danielle, let me ask you the big question. What is the evolutionary advantage of lactation, of producing milk to feed your young. Why don't you just go out and get some worms or insects or, you know, meat or something? Why why produce milk? That seems like a, a lot of work.
7: <laughs> You're right. It's a lot of work. And I'm sure a lot of women <laughs> out there would agree with you how much work it is. But that work comes with a tremendous benefit. <clears throat> and the benefit is that mammals can go anywhere and feed their young in all kinds of environments that they won't necessarily have food in, for example, seals will nurse their young on shore, and then they go out for weeks at a time, and then they come back and nurse again, and bears, like, nurse their young while they're in hibernation. There's no food there available at all. So it means that mammals have, like, this way of filling up their pantry, so to speak, and then they can give that food, that energy to their young at some other time, where no other type of animal can do this so it has really allowed mammals to explore all kinds of biological niches and created a lot of diversity simply because they can go places that other animals can't
4: i was going to say that it sounds like such a such a tremendous advantage that it, you would, it is
7: well, and that's why mammals have been so successful on the planet
4: well exactly what i was going to say that they should take over the world but i guess <laughs> i guess they have
7: and notice what's happening <laughs>
4: <laughs> they have taken over the world now i wonder if that suggests that aliens will be uh, mammals as well
7: it does seem uh, it does seem that aliens would have some kind of ways of doing that. They'd have their own battery packs, so to speak. But you know, we only have these battery packs for our young. It would be nice to have even better battery packs for ourselves. We have it in the sense of adipose tissue, meaning our fat. But um, I suspect that aliens would have something even better.
4: Oh, well, maybe they had portable refrigerators with bottles of milk in them. Yeah. Well, look, the obvious thing that occurs to anyone who would read about sequencing the part of the genome that cattle use to produce milk is, is this going to result in better milk or more milk or or cows that are 80% udders or just what? What's the (laughs) practical benefit?
7: (laughs) We definitely expect that having the genome sequence will allow us to better tailor products for human consumption. And I don't mean to say that there is going to be any one best milk or one best cheese, uh, because we all have different requirements. Like little children really need high fat milks, um, and it could be that adults need lower, you know, lower fat milks. I'm picking in that very simple example, but um, having the genome would allow us to manipulate the very types of fats that end up in milk, and some could be
4: beneficial. Well, finally, Danielle, if this works out what's next are we going to start doing this for pigs so we get you know pigs that are mostly pork belly or whatever
7: <laughs> um you could certainly imagine that one, one of the most important um aspects of getting genome sequences of our farm animals would be actually to help us reduce the environmental impacts of raising these animals so that we are able to with less resources feed more humans
4: well, Danielle LeMay, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about the, the future of milk. You're
5: welcome. It was fun. Well, Danielle LeMay is at UC Davis, and we're here in this messy garage closing in on your Star Trekker, I hope. Oh, here's a box. Hang on. The date's been smudged. Let me get
4: Does it say Caltech? Yep, it says Caltech. Oh, that's from my grad student days. Let's see.
5: Yeah. 18. Yeah, right. Yeah, I right
4: believe now. Caltech was founded in the 20th century. Modern.
5: Okay, well, let's see what's in the air. Hey, there's a book. Ooh, Neutral Hydrogen in Nearby Spiral Galaxies. Ooh, boy, that sounds like a page-turner. I might have to drop everything right now to read Neutral Hydrogen in Nearby Spiral Galaxies. What is this?
4: Yeah, well, it's my Ph.D. thesis, and by the way, it's about neutral hydrogen in some nearby spiral galaxies in case you want a head start on the plot.
5: Hey, don't give away the ending. <laughs> so this is a the thesis that you were referring to when we spoke with those students in Chicago? Yeah, that's right, in Chicago. It was John Bohannon and Katrine Kohlenberg, I believe. They were, they were a lot of fun.
4: Yep, he's the gonzo scientist. I think he's a contributing correspondent for Science Magazine. And Katrine was from Austria.
5: That's right. She's an astrophysicist at the University of Vienna. Anyway, that was really fun. Remember, they were dancing to their Ph.D. theses. John had started that contest in which students dance, you know, do those interpretive dances to their Ph.D. theses. Well,
4: that's quite a challenge.
8: The challenge that uh, we posed to scientists was, tell us about your Ph.D. thesis, but you're not allowed to use any words or PowerPoint or, in fact, anything but dance.
5: So you actually asked people to dance to their PhD thesis?
8: Uh, Not just dance to it, but rather turn it into a dance. Mm -hmm. So part of the challenge was how to extract some essence of it, something that you could translate into dance.
9: The first time it was in Vienna, so that's where we were based at the time, and um, the topics were astronomy. There were a lot of astronomers because I made publicity in my institute but there was also archaeology and even history. Well, So Seth, what do you think of this endeavor? Do you think they can do it?
4: Well, I don't know what's going to happen when they get to, you know, data table six. (laughs) That's what I want to know. I mean, here's figure 11 in dance.
5: Okay, so we'll start with you. John, what was the title of your your thesis?
4: Well, uh,
8: like most people by now, I I can't remember it. But it has to do with the evolution of a bacterium that lives in the soil called Pseudomonas fluorescens. And I did this PhD in 2002 at the University of Oxford, and it all had to do with a single mutation ultimately in the genome of this bacterium, which led to some startling adaptive changes. Its lifestyle completely changed with this one mutation. There there are many different stories within that to tell. So the one that I chose was the uh, so-called operon, which is a a little club of genes that all sit next to each other like neighbors, and they code for proteins that actually uh, work together to build this uh, phenotype, this lifestyle, which turns out to be a, a floating island of uh, bacteria.
5: Now, do you need to limber up or... I'm okay, not, so you're no, bending your gone. legs, shaking your arms? You're ready for this? Taking off your coat, perhaps? Oh, so she's, she's doing this with you.
8: Yeah, because uh, since this is the story of a, a bunch of neighboring jeans, you need multiple dancers.
4: Okay, okay. well, they're, they're, they're lined up side by side, facing forward. It's as if uh, they were in a military parade. Oh, they acknowledge one another. It's kind of a do do sort of thing, a little more formal. They're touching one another, poking one another gently, acknowledging, bowing, and so forth. I, I suppose this is the dance of interaction.
8: So we're establishing the relationships and the mutations coming up.
4: Okay, so they're interacting genes. Okay.
5: Get ready for the mutation. I, I'm ready for mutation. Tell me if you spot I'm it. I'm always
4: ready for mutation. Okay, so
5: they're bowing. Oh, whoa. That actually looked kind of like a disco move. So that was sort of like an undulation. All right, so this is the mutation part. They're sort of moving and undulating together.
4: Gyrating. Very silent. But then
5: genes would be, wouldn't they?
4: Well, I, you know, I gyrating genes.
5: <laughs> right. Well, well, very, very good.
4: That okay. Was a small sample.
5: <laughs> that was a small. I, I think we got the the picture. Actually, that was quite effective.
4: I yes. think. Yes. So yeah. So you're also very good dancers. I have to <laughs> oh, say. Thank you.
5: Yeah. I think we have <laughs> one other one here. It's
9: astronomy, <laughs> is it? Right. Okay. It is astronomy. Okay. What was your thesis title? The title was a spectroscopic study of the Blaschko effect in our Larry. Okay. And so. in, in a nutshell, what is that <laughs> in effect? In a nutshell. Our Lyrae stars are pulsating stars, so they become bigger and smaller regularly, periods of about half a day. And then there are a certain fraction of these stars that, have, that become even brighter. And this even, getting even brighter and then fainter again is also periodic. So there's a modulation on their pulsation. Do you do all your dances together? No, no, but I had a group dance so. Oh, so you can enlist other people. You don't, yes. You're not up there on stage on your yeah. own. Yeah.
8: Okay. There, were, there so. were some solo dances, but a lot of big group numbers. You can see it on video.
5: What is the concept that you're about to portray through your dance in this moment?
9: So the concept is um, I come up to the stage first, and I have a star in my hand, which is pulsating regularly. So it's just quietly pulsating. In the background is music by Bach, very peaceful music. And my friends, colleagues come up as well, and they do the same. Stars are pulsating in different positions. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, the stars freak out, so they have this modulation. So,
8: <laughs> Come on, you got to tell the music, because that's the best part. Yeah,
9: the music goes from the back Aww, into the... freak
5: out! Yeah, and then... Now, now Seth, you're an astronomer. Is that a technical term, freak out? Do stars freak out?
4: Uh, astronomers do. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about the stars. If they do it, they, they do it without notice.
5: <laughs> okay, well, show us that moment up to the freak out point, okay. where the stars freak out. So these are pulsating stars. Okay, Seth?
4: Okay, all right. And, and they're gesturing with their hands, you know, making bigger circles, smaller circles. The, the stars are moving. Through space, participating in galactic rotation as is their want, and they're pulsating as stars of this variety do. Seth, can you uh, <laughs> kick us off with the music? <laughs> oh no, 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 no! He I'm does, even worse singing than I am dancing. He does not
5: know songs <laughs> from the, the disco era. Uh, no, ours. no.
4: D- ah, freak out! Moment. If it's post Buddy Holly, I don't know it. Okay,
5: okay. So, so we want to see that freak out moment. Okay. You can, so you can, are. you can vocalize if you want to.
4: Ah, freak out! Okay, they're, they're freaking out there. They're, they're gesturing. It looks like, wait a minute, it, it, it looks like John Travolta, actually. Uh, yeah, there's with, some disco there. Yeah, pulsation. definitely. More pulsation. They're, they're, they're pulsing.
9: And what, what's the star actually oh, doing yeah. at this moment? <laughs> well, it just undergoes shockwaves. So that's, that's what happens. And for some of them, the shock waves seem to get stronger at certain, in, within certain pulsation cycles. Now, Seth, okay, so finally, uh, your, what was your PhD thesis?
4: Well, it was on the rotation curves of three spiral-type galaxies, in other words. So that's easy to dance through. You just spin around.
5: I was going to say maybe could the two you of you dance us? to? Yeah. No,
4: no, no. My physician has advised me against uh, doing anything <laughs> that resembles dance, as has the local arts committee. I had to tell you, it. but it's easy enough. The, the surprising thing in that thesis is that they were all rotating too fast in their outer regions. So, so if that isn't clue enough for you, I, I, I guess you ought to consult with Balanchine if he's still alive.
5: You ready to take on Seth's thesis topic?
4: I'm always ready. All right.
9: Okay. So outer regions spin faster, all right? Okay. So. That's actually hard
8: with uh, hands attached to arms that are attached to shoulders. I'm I'm a separate part. Ah.
4: Okay, so I represent the center, and she's the outer limbs. Yeah. She's the outer regions of the galaxy, which are just going entirely too fast. Look at that. Okay, so he's spinning in the center, just like the central regions of your average spiral galaxy. And she's in the outer regions, just going around much too fast. (laughs) The the, the significance of all this is that uh, there's dark matter around. Is that true? Yep.
5: Did either one of them represent the dark matter? They they, they represented the movement created by Yeah, the they merely the dark dark indicate
4: matter. indicated the presence of dark matter.
5: Okay, well thank you very much.
8: Ah uh, that was fun as soon as <laughs> I uh, <laughs> stopped throwing up. <laughs>
5: Well, we put that video of John and Katrine dancing on our blog, but, but says, Seth, well, what's the connection that you made when you were talking to them, uh, when it came to your theses, about the inner and the outer regions of the stars and, and dark matter?
4: Well, it was causing the galaxies I was studying to spin too fast. That was the big mystery. This fast spinning was the clue that there was something there that we couldn't see, so we called it dark, Dark matter. Is and that
5: what the universe is made out of?
4: Well, about uh, you know, 20% of it is dark matter, something like that.
5: And 20% of this garage is made out of.
4: Uh, it's also dark matter, but only when you turn forks. out the lights. Wait, might <laughs> oh. be forks. Yeah, oh yeah, don't mess with those forks. Let's, I might have to use them.
5: Let's find the star tracker. Okay, okay. let's double our efforts. Okay, let me look over here. Oh, here's a box. here's here's a box. We haven't gotten to this corner yet.
4: Oh, okay. Uh, okay does it have a, a, Yeah, it's
5: it's a it's a wooden box.
4: Does it have a tag on it?
5: Yeah, it says uh, star. Tracer. No, <laughs> Star Tracker. sister. Star
4: Tracker. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to jump to conclusions, but...
5: Okay, let's open it up. Yep. All right.
4: All Does that righty. look like it? Yeah, that that's like it. A Man, tracker? I haven't seen that in a while.
5: Okay, so we found it. It's a success.
4: Yeah. And you're going to go use this tonight. I am. I'm going to do that to make time exposures of the stars around the telescopes. So I guess that kind of wraps up that hunt, but it also wraps up this show. Thanks to Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, who work both behind and in front of the scenes to make it all happen. And it's possible that both of
5: them are here in this garage somewhere.
4: God, I hope not. They're probably not stuff. breathing well.
5: Yes. <laughs> and thanks to the SETI Institute and the NASA Astrobiology Institute for their support. Okay, well, let's get some of this, let's just get this okay. stuff out of here. Okay. So you carry the star tracker, I'm going to carry this old popcorn popper. And all right. So we can get it going here. Okay. Yeah,
4: okay. Uh, careful, Molly, you better. Tr- oh.
5: Sorry, I'm
7: okay.
5: Got it. Ah, fresh air.
4: Yeah, but there's no stuff here. Want to see my storm cellar?
3: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?